Well, good morning. My name is Aubrey Spears, and I want to add my greeting to Drew's. And um, I am very glad to get to be here with you this morning. I'm one of the pastors here. What a great joy this is. There's this thing we say uh, in the Anglican Church, Catholics do it, the Orthodox do it, some Presbyterians, lots of Lutherans, where a person greets someone during the Easter season, which lasts 50 days, all right? So one of my favorite theologians said, champagne, breakfast, all through Easter, if there was ever a right time to do it, all right? But the greeting that Christians traditionally have given each other during this time is not, hey, how are you, or what's up, um, but Christ is risen, and everybody would respond, that's right, let's do it again. I'm going to say Christ is risen, you're going to say he is risen indeed, hallelujah, all right? Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Very good. Now, we've said this a number of times this morning. We've said it. We've sung it. We've prayed it. But what does it mean? If you're a Christian, it's good to stop and ask, what does the resurrection of Jesus mean? After all, it's, it's this. It's the resurrection Together with the crucifixion, that is the foundation of the church. That's the foundation of the Christian life. That's what this whole thing is about. And if you're not a follower of Christ, but you find yourself here this morning in a Christian church on Easter, then it's a good thing for you to think about also. What is this thing that generates so much energy? that creates so many rituals and traditions. We've just heard John chapter 20, verses 1 through 18, and this is a great guide for us into the meaning of the resurrection. In John chapter 20, the first thing we see is Mary of Magdala, all alone, in the dark, in the early hours of the day, Her eyes are red from weeping, from sleepless Sabbath nights. She's come to the tomb to sit by the body and to weep. But the tomb is empty. His body's gone. It's another twist of the knife. Chaos upon chaos. Someone has taken the body. What a cruel thing to do. Why would somebody do that? Why would anybody do that? It's, it's more than she can handle. So she frantically runs back. She tells Peter and John. And they ran too, back to the tomb to see for themselves. And when they got there, huffing and puffing. John apparently puffing and huffing more than, or Peter more than John since he was a slowpoke. And when they get there, their hearts pounding, what they see is an enigma, a puzzle. Whoever took the body unwrapped it, which would have been very complicated to do. And not only did they unwrap it, they they went one more. They went through all the trouble of laying out the cloths to create an effect. It looks as though the body wasn't picked up and unwrapped, I mean, and the claws thrown aside, 
but it looks as if the body had just disappeared, leaving the empty cloths like a collapsed balloon when, when all the air goes out of it. Then John had a flash of insight. No thief would have done this. No thief would have stopped to unwrap the cloths. The body hasn't been taken. This isn't the scene of a crime. This is the mind-boggling scene of new creation. The world has turned a corner. The world has just now broken out of its long winter into spring. You see, this isn't the first time in John's gospel that we've met death with its typical ancient Near Eastern practice of wrapping a body in cloths. Back in chapter 11, Jesus has raised Lazarus from the dead and we're told, the man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. And so Jesus instructed the people standing nearby, unbind him, let him go. When Lazarus was raised from the dead, he was still wrapped in grave clothes. He came back from the dead into a world where death still reigned. But Jesus, when he was raised from the dead, he left death behind. He's gone through death, out into a new world, a new creation, a life where death itself has been defeated in life Sheer life, life in all its fullness, could finally begin at last. So here is something fundamental about the resurrection. In his resurrection, Jesus won the decisive victory over the forces of death and darkness and evil. These grave clothes left in the grave, they're a celebration Within this tired world of ours, this world of shame and sin and death, these clothes are the celebration of the triumph of the Lamb in the decisive victory over death. And they are the sign of the ultimate future victory where God will be all in all and His glory will cover the earth as waters cover the sea. So what what we mean when we say Christ is risen is we are saying that Jesus' resurrection is the victory over death. Something happened in the dying and rising of Jesus, the Messiah, through which the world has become a different place. New creation has begun. That's one thing. That resurrection means. Jesus is the king who liberates us from our most fierce adversary. Evil and death. Let's keep going though. There's more. Verse 11. In their excitement and confusion, John and Peter have run off, leaving Mary alone again. She didn't see what John saw. She was locked up in her own grief, her despair. For Mary, it was still night. 
Mary in that moment in verse 11, she's a sign to us of the present world. A world of sorrows and sin and death. Weeping at the tomb of Israel's last best hope. But notice, even in the darkness of her despair, she is not alone. There are angels. Does she know they're angels? Don't know. They ask her, woman, why are you weeping? And she replies, they've taken away my Lord. And I don't know where they've laid him. She's so sure Jesus is dead, really dead, because it doesn't require the enlightenment to know that dead people stay dead. Blinded by tears and depression, she numbly turns to see a man standing behind her. Who is he? What's he doing? Mary thinks he's a gardener, but it's really Jesus. It's just that she doesn't know it, not yet, not until he calls her by name. Not just any name, her best name. You see, back in verses 1 and 11, when Mary's name is mentioned, in the original language of John's gospel, it was originally written in the Greek language, not English. And so when we read the manuscripts of John's gospel, in verse 1, where it says Mary, and verse 11, where it says Mary, it's the Greek form of her name, which is Maria. It's the name she would have been known by on the street. After all, this is happening a few hundred years after Alexander the Great has rolled through that part of the world and spread Greek influence, and the Greek language has become the lingua franca. But in verse 16, when Jesus calls out her name, when the gardener, when Jesus refers to her, in the manuscripts, it's not Maria. It's Mariam. We get our, our name Miriam from it. It's her Aramaic or Hebrew name. That was the name her parents would have called her in the home. It's the name her dad would call her when she was a little girl. It's the name that says, Miriam, it's going to be okay. I am alive. And in that moment, her tears of grief disappear under the passionate force of her love. And this is a second insight into the meaning of the resurrection. Not only is the resurrection about Jesus the King who conquers death and is bringing new life, new creation, healing to the world, but here we see that the resurrection of Jesus is about the creation of a new relationship between Jesus and his followers. Can you imagine Mary in that moment? When she hears her name? When she discovers a more interior relationship with the risen Jesus, a mutual indwelling, he and her and she and him, a relationship that will be fully developed at Pentecost with the gift 
of the Spirit. Look in that moment at Mary. In the place of grief, there's a different sensation coursing through her body. A bit like falling in love. A bit like a sunrise. Or like the sound of rain at the end of a long drought. It's faith. Oh, she had had faith before. She had believed that Jesus was the Messiah. She had believed that God had sent him, that he was God's man for God's people in God's world, but this was different. Now she has the belief, the faith, that more than her preconceived idea of the Messiah, new creation had begun. Winter had thawed in the cosmos. Death was dead. And so Mary throws herself at the feet of Jesus, the king, and clings to him in love and faith and adoration. So John chapter 20 shows us that the resurrection of Jesus was the inbreaking of God's new creation. And it was God's loving offer of an invitation into that new creation. But there's one more thing. You see, John's account of the first resurrection morning doesn't stop in worship. Mary, at his feet, clinging to him, worshiping him, adoring him. It doesn't stop in verse 15. It goes on to verse 16. Listen again to the climactic moment of John's account of the first Easter morning. This is verse 17 and 18. Jesus said to Mary, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to the Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. It's the painting on the front of the worship guide. Do not cling to me. Strange words. It's captivated the church uh, for centuries. It's, it's one of the things that artists who paint uh, scenes from Scripture are often drawn to. It's as if Jesus is saying, this isn't about coming back into the old life, Mary. It won't be like it used to be with you and I walking together around the villages of Palestine. This is about going into a new world. And off she goes, back to her community. Now just imagine how difficult this would have been for Mary. Ed, would you have wanted to leave? I mean, could you, right? I mean, the... The one that, the loss of whom shattered her life is risen. That's not the only thing that made it hard for her to leave. Those jerks left her there. They left her in darkness and despair. And in greedy joy, they ran off. The same jerks 
she had seen abandon her Lord once before at the cross when she stood there. These are the ones she sent back to. Can't you just sense her unquenchable longing for the Lord himself? And yet, it is the Lord who calls her to go forth into her community to these men with whom she must surely be angry, for whom she surely lacked compassion because they lacked compassion for her. The whole thrust of John's Easter morning ends right in that moment. It's this. It is, it is to take you and me through the person of Mary, through the eyes of Mary Magdalene, to the heart of the earliest Easter message. Jesus is raised. Therefore, the world is different. Now you have work to do. We are called to work as witnesses to the resurrection, to live it out, to announce it. With Jesus, the new creation has already begun, and Jesus' followers are invited not only to benefit from it, but to share in the new creation project. And this is the climax of the resurrection story. Jesus is risen, so he is the world's True Lord, new creation has begun, and those who through faith in Jesus Christ experience that new creation are commissioned as agents of the new creation. But how? How do we act out our agency? What does it mean to be a new creation agent? Well, again... John wants us to look at that question through the lens of Mary. Four ways. When we look at what it means to be an agent of new creation here in this passage through Mary. First of all, we begin to live as Easter people when we accept Jesus' invitation to a friendship of intimacy and love. Aren't we all just like Mary? Running here and there frantically, feeling empty, wailing and weeping for peace, seeking meaning and satisfaction, seeking a life with, with weight and substance. And what does this world offer us? Our world has lived on so many lies and half-truths about what it means to be human, whether it's the celebrity culture, the drug culture, the idolization of sports, the obsession with sex, or just the slow deterioration of human relationships and community. But you don't have to settle for that. You can turn in trust and belief and loyalty to Jesus, and when you do that, you began to move into new creation. He's there, standing right behind you, behind every one of you. Just turn to him. He's calling you. 
He's calling you by name. The resurrection of Jesus is the breaking in of God's life-giving kingdom into this world. And it, and it holds within it the thrilling possibility of God's life-giving kingdom breaking into your life. But you can't hold it out there like some system, like some piece of data. You turn to the risen Christ, the real living Christ who really knows your name. We must open our lives to a friendship with Jesus. Is there a tomb in your life? Open your life to a friendship with Jesus and he'll turn your tomb into a garden. Have you done that? If not, I would love to talk with you. Let's have coffee. Let's have lunch. Let's meet for beer one afternoon. Not just me. There's many people in this room who would love to talk to you. If you have questions, just reach out. Let's talk about it. Just suppose, really suppose that Jesus rose from the dead. Just try to imagine it. Second, we live as Easter people by rediscovering what a full and genuine human life was always meant to be. In other words, we we move out into a dead, tired world as agents of new creation When we live lives of holiness. That's what holiness is. Holiness is becoming genuinely human. So many of us think of holiness as puritanical in a sense of restriction and kind of Debbie Downer. But holiness is wholeness. Being what a human was meant to be. You see, new creation has broken in. The life of heaven has come to earth. And as Easter people, we can leave behind in the graves, in the grave, all the spoils and downgrades of human calling. Again, consider Mary. When Jesus arrives, we realize that we're not just looking at Mary In a garden that's become a tomb. We're looking at Eve. Weeping for her lost innocence. And right there in front of her. Is the new Adam. The true Adam. You see when she thought he was the gardener. She was sort of wrong but mostly right. The gardener had returned. Charged with bringing the chaos of God's creation into new order, into flower, into fruitfulness. That's what holiness is. In Mary, we see that Eve has once again been reunited with Adam, the new Adam. Jesus is the one who has returned to the garden of this world to uproot the thorns and thistles and replace them with blossoms and harvest. Jesus is the one through whose healing stewardship the whole creation will be dug afresh and planted once again with the tree of life. 
A third way. We must be advance runners of the kingdom. It's not just by turning to Christ and to a, in receiving him in a personal relationship. It's not just moving out into the world with holiness. It's moving out into the world to work. To work for justice. To work for beauty. And to work for the healing of the earth. The whole point of Easter is that God the creator has dealt with everything that messes up his wonderful world. He set in motion his plan to sort it all out, to put it right, to remake it so that it can be filled with glory and goodness. And like Mary, this will mean for many of us going somewhere we don't want to go. To people we'd rather not go to. It can be so difficult to move from an intimate encounter with Jesus right back into a family, into a neighborhood, a community, a, a house, a job, a community with all its needs and expectations. None of us can do everything that needs to be done, but all of us should do something. Something. Even if it's only befriending a single weak person. If that's all that your plate allows. Start there. An elderly lady with Alzheimer's. A young man who has no citizenship papers. That's what justice is. Justice work is working with those who do not have the social capital to secure justice for themselves. We are resurrection agents. We are advance runners of the kingdom of God when we work for justice. And we're resurrection people when we work for beauty in this good but broken world of ours. A world where the natural order comes up with a deadly tsunami one day and a new cancer the next day and where the human effect on the world seems to be just a downward spiral of bombs and blood and hatred and horror and in the midst of this, work for beauty. As a way of giving it to the man, of saying to this man in this world, no. Horror is not the last word. Ugliness is not the last word. We work for beauty as signs of the future and as uncoverings of the buds that are here now. And we're advance runners of the kingdom not only when we work for justice and beauty, but when we work for the healing and renewal of our planet. In the words of the previous Archbishop of Canterbury, the cross is one really good indicator that the creator thought his world was worth dying for. One day, God will renew this world, and I mean this planet, and I mean the Shenandoah Valley, and Mole Hill, and our fields, and the ocean. And one of the ways we live as Easter people is by searching out ways that the present groaning creation can be set free from at least a part of its bondage. Fourthly, we 
live as agents of Easter when we accept the invitation into the new creation through a personal friendship with the Lord of the new creation. We're agents of the new creation when we let that new creation power grow in us what it means to be a true human. Third, we are advance runners of the kingdom when we work for justice, beauty, and healing. And fourth, we are Easter people when we turn in prayer and praise to worship and adore the risen King Jesus. Mary at his feet in adoration. Every Sunday, that's what we do. We gather in this room and we adore King Jesus. But let me show you my favorite place this comes up. It's not Mary crumpled at his feet. Do you remember when Mary called, when Jesus called Mary by her Hebrew name? Verse 16, Miriam. There was more going on in that moment than identifying Mary by who she was. He's also calling Mary to become who she was made to be. That first Miriam. That Miriam in the story that Libby read to us way back in Exodus, right after the most significant event in the history of the Jewish people, right after their remarkable liberation from Egypt, right after Moses and the people of Israel sang the great song of liberation and freedom, right after that, we saw the first Miriam, Moses' sister, tambourine in hand, singing the wild song of God's victory over the forces of bondage. That's what he was calling her to. He was calling her to rise up and to sing the resurrection song. In his crucifixion and resurrection, Jesus liberates the human race and all the cosmos from the great powers of darkness. The biblical faith, if it is anything, it is a singing faith, a worshiping faith from Miriam's wild song of triumph on the shores of the Red Sea all the way through to the book of Revelation with the thunderous song of all creation at the triumph of the Lamb. To be people of the resurrection, we must worship regularly With singing, with all of our hearts, we gather around the risen king. People who gather week after week to celebrate God's mighty acts from creation to new creation. And when we do this, when we worship, we find ourselves caught up in prayer and praise and Eucharist. And when we do that, God shapes us into a true community. And he shapes us into the people God made us to be. So let's do this. Right here in the middle and the muddle of our twisted and fragmented and puzzling and grieving lives. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Father, thank you for your son. Help us to be Easter people. In Christ's name, amen.